Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Welcome to Faculty Feed. We're just delighted to have a good friend of ours join us today, Dr. Chris Barton. Chris, welcome to Faculty Feed. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So Chris is an assistant professor of neurology in the Division of Child Neurology and program director of the Child Neurology Residency Program. Chris, tell us a bit about your roles here at the University of Louisville, how long you've been here, and how do you fill your day? I started a medical school here in 2010 and did my child neurology residency program uh, here in 2014. Got brainwashed into being a child neurologist and luckily <laughs> didn't make anybody mad, so they kept me on as faculty. So I've been here for three years, um, which has been really wonderful. Because of that, I've had the opportunity to get involved in things very quickly at multiple different levels. Um, so I am, like I said, the program director for the child neurology residency program. Um, I serve at the medical school doing a number of different lectures um, at the MS1, 2, 3, and 4 levels. I um, um, uh, help run the Gold Humanism Honor Society at the medical school level. So uh, a lot of opportunities to, to teach, lots of opportunities to learn how to teach um, in various different capacities. So Chris, last summer you gave an Educator Grand Rounds on the neuroscience of learning. How did you get interested in that topic? That was definitely starting with the HPE course. So one of the um, beauties of being here as faculty is our opportunity to have great faculty development through uh, our HPE courses. I always like to say that uh, most of us in education decide to do education in medicine because we liked it but we no, no one ever sat down and taught us how to do it. Oh, wait, um, wait, Chris, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're a neurologist, mm-hmm. right? Don't you, you study know? brains, right? I thought that's part of what you did. Yeah, you would think so. And we do a lot of teaching. Um, and a lot of people who teach at the medical school level, they often just teach based off of how people taught them before. Um, there's not necessarily knowledge or understanding about why we do what we do. Um, and Stacy, to your point, I'm a neurologist, That's so right. we ask why questions all the time. <laughs> um, and so, so for me, um, this was uh, something I got interested in, not wanting to just like to teach, but actually being, hopefully good at it or better at it. And it's really nice because it feeds so much into my already big interest of neuroscience and blending those with education. Part of one of our courses, we had the opportunity to read one of 10 different books. Um, and I uh, coerced my group into reading uh, a book called NeuroTeach because nobody volunteered. Um, and it was a fantastic book because it really looks at thinking about how the brain works and ways that we can apply that in terms of how we practically teach people. It just seems like we really should do a better job of educating our students and residents about how learning works and then our faculty about how learning works. Because if a neurologist doesn't know these things until HPE, what hope does the OB doctor and the pathologist and everybody else where they don't think about brains at all after medical school? And so we're delighted that you learned this in HPE. The whole purpose of HPE is to drive that type of information 
toward our faculty so they're better equipped, uh, better prepared to ultimately uh, benefit the students and, and learn all of our learners, residents, fellows, et cetera. And so thank goodness you went and, and learned this stuff then. Can you summarize maybe what's different now that you've done the certificate program? Probably the biggest things is I have a lot more reasoning of why I do things. I would reflect and have a lot of teachers who were fantastic and great, and so I emulated them, but I didn't know why they did what they did, and I feel like I understand that a lot better. I'm really big lately, as I'm teaching students and teaching learners about making the implicit explicit, I like to say that, um, so things that we all take for granted, but saying it out loud. Some of that could be how we actually learn or how we actually retain information um, or how we talk we do a lot of talking as doctors, but we don't always talk about how we're supposed to talk. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing that I do is there's more method to my madness. And then I'm also talking about why we're doing what we're doing. Could you talk a little bit about the science of learning? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so they talk a little bit in this book about basically their own creation. They called it mind-body education. And what this is, is a combination of neuroscience, education, and psychology research. Basically trying to blend those three things together. Because in life, but particularly in medicine, we often live in silos, right? We think, uh, you know, the neurologist and the infectious disease doctor and the cardiologist, right? They're all working independently trying to take care of one thing. Same thing happens when we think about how we're supposed to teach people or how we're supposed to learn. You've got people who are trying to learn about learning just thinking about, oh, how does the brain work? You've got people who are trying to learn about learning who are educational people. And then you've got psychologists who devote their whole lives to trying to think about how people learn. Mind-brain education takes those three things in combination to create this new thing of using specific parts of each to help formulate how do we teach and how do we learn. How about an example? What would be a a recommendation based on the book or something that you would tell people to do? So we talk about a lot with neuroplasticity. So I'm a brain doctor for kids. So we think about neuroplasticity all the time. So this is this really cool phenomenon about how the brain can constantly grow or learn and change over time. We don't think about this, but anytime you learn something new or you learn a new skill, you're building brand new neural pathways. You're getting rid of old ones that maybe you're not using, you're creating new connections and you're making new neural networks. And so over time, you can do that more and more. So if you think about it, us in education, we're really brain changers right? If you uh, break that down. Um, And that's a huge deal when you think about it. Imagine, you know, your kindergarten teachers being changers of your kids' brains. Um, It's a kind of a weird way to think about it, but it's important. And so if you think about those things, you can almost hijack that, right? We can say, okay, if we're brain changers, is there ways that we can actually do this in a smarter, more efficient way that is really gonna facilitate learning. A lot of times in teaching, we focus so much on how we teach. But honestly, nobody cares how we teach. All we care is whether the learner can learn it. Um, And so if we're really trying to focus on teaching to learn, and that's where, again, you can use neuroplasticity. So let's let's talk about a more specific example of what that could look like. Um, So let's say um, you're trying to learn about brain anatomy. Um, So what a lot of people will do is maybe they'll attend a lecture 
or they'll read a book, basically try to learn it in these different ways. That may be more of a passive thing that requires a lot of reading, a lot of repetition. Um, but what we know is about the best way to create neural networks is through more active participation. Um, and a lot of us do this, you know, a lot of people do this naturally. They may work in a study group where they are talking with people at the same level as them. Um, you know, one thing to pause for a second, one thing we forget about educators is I may be a master of a topic, but I didn't know how to learn that topic. I learned that topic 10 years ago. So somebody who just learned it may be way better much more of an expert on how to learn the subject than I will be. At Georgia Tech, um, their engineering school, interestingly enough, um, they actually have a rule in their engineering programs that people who are professors of certain topics cannot teach on those topics at the undergrad level. Okay. So if you are a thermodynamics teacher, you can't teach thermodynamics because it just assumed that you know way more about thermodynamics <laughs> than any of your undergrad students that. and that you'd be really bad at teaching it. So imagine, Dr. Rabelais, if you have to do all the neurology lectures and I have to do all the ID lectures <laughs> uh, uh, at, the, at the MS1 level. Wow. Um, well, I was going to ask, so you talked about... Um, like the plasticity for kids is that true for adults uh, and thinking question. about um you're from the school of medicine but thinking about our health professions education learners like across the hsc where are they from kids versus adults so neuroplasticity can still be there and available up until people in their 50s or 60s or even older but those prime times especially when white matter is getting um more um you know, ingrained is really in those years in the 20s um, and early 30s, which is most of our learners in mm -hmm. education. So neuroplasticity exists for anybody. So if you, uh, you're listening to this in your older age, you definitely have the ability to learn something new. Um, and so with that, we always like to encourage, and one of the things a book really encourages is this idea of a not yet mindset. Um, and so a lot of ways that you can help increase your neuroplasticity or increase your ability is the mindset you have on going into things going forward. And the not yet mindset is super helpful both as a teacher and a learner. So let's talk about that specifically. So as a learner, um, you may have, let's say I want to learn how to play piano, right? Well, I'll go, hey, I'm 30, I'm not musically inclined. I could try the piano, but I'm just not going to have the ability to do that, right? So try as I may, if I walk into something with that mindset, you know, I've already, my brain has already kind of shut that off. I've already trained myself. My limbic system, which is my fight or flight response, has come on and it's kept the ability for the memory centers of my brain to work and boom, it's not going to happen right versus if you walk into it going you know i don't know how to play the piano yet yeah. um but i definitely have the ability to um that that can be huge because now you're engaging different parts of your brain parts of your brain that are going to be better um for learning um so that not yet mindset is another very practical way to do that so you're talking from the learner's perspective so when a learner is coming in and say okay gosh i was always horrible about math but all right so but i'm gonna work on this because i just don't have it yet Wonderful. So how can faculty or educators use this not yet mindset 
to help their learners. The most simple way is making sure we have a not yet mindset when we approach our learners. So that's the most important thing that we can do because whether we believe it or not, sometimes we'll automatically assume um, that um, certain learners don't have the ability to learn something. And we do that very subliminally. None of us are doing that on purpose. We're not doing it uh, purposely. Um, you know, and, and that's that's a specific thing I would put as a challenge for people this week is just think about areas that are learners that you're teaching that you've kind of decided, okay, this is something that we're probably never ever gonna be able to do or never ever accomplish. So that's a major thing is I think the first thing is our approach to our learners. Um, and then I think you can do it on a more individual basis as well. And so the major thing is identifying learners who have a not yet mindset, um, or sorry, that don't have a not yet mindset. And with those learners really trying to encourage them um, through really simple ways um, to help inspire that growth. So you're suggesting that we should be explicit with learners about some of the components of learning science. Absolutely. I think it's very important to be to bring that stuff to light. Right. Um, and it can be really helpful too. of, you know, we especially our learners. Right. They are very um, motivated. They are hardworking and oftentimes that they have a good knowledge base of how the brain works or at least a basic knowledge base. And so using that, I think, creates a really nice visual. Right. Of gosh, we can literally do these things. This is a very practical way we can approach this. So Chris, you've talked about uh, the importance of being active in the process of learning and that passive sort of acceptance of material it may not be sufficient to really learn something. So how do you put that into practice? You're on call today. How, when you're rounding with residents or fellows or students, how do you put that phenomenon into practice? Uh, uh, fantastic question. And the answer is questions. <laughs> um, uh, and that's one of the best ways, I think, to do this. Now, let's pause um, because when we approach in the medical community, a lot of our learners about asking questions, um, one of the first things that comes up, um, and Dr. Rabelin and I have talked about this on the side in the past, is what about pimping? Because yeah. um, there is this mindset, you know, uh, in medicine that when people ask questions, they're asking pimping. So, so you might define pimping because I think, you know, some of our colleagues at other schools, I know nursing was unfamiliar with this terminology. And so maybe define that real quick. Yeah. So, um, so pimping for people outside um, is basically asking questions in a very fast way where you're trying to figure out what learners don't know with the goal of intimidating them or establishing a hierarchy. And this is kind of an old school approach to teaching. If anybody likes watching TV shows, this is Dr. Cox on rounds with JD and Scrubs, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a perfect example of like what pimping looks like, or Dr. Kelso actually yeah. would do this a lot. Um, and so that's, that's what that is. And so a lot of our learners um, know about pimping. That's something that historically has been a part of medicine. Um, honestly, I would even say maybe a black mark on medicine mm -hmm. um, that we have done a very, um, worked really hard to try to get rid of that. Um, because of that though, a lot of our learners, when they are asked questions, will automatically jump into a, like I said before, a fight or flight mode where they don't wanna answer questions or they feel like they're being put on the spot or they're feeling intimidated. 
Um, and that's important because, like I said, so going back to the way the brain works, you know, you want to use in order to think and process, we use our frontal lobes. Um, and if you're trying to remember things you know in the past, you know, you're using different memory centers that are in different parts of your brain. And so to try to access those from your memory centers and your frontal lobe, you want to try to concentrate energy there. And if learners are stressed or freaked out or they feel like they are intimidated, automatically the brain switches, the limbic system uh, goes in. So um, imagine through evolution, like if you're being chased by a tiger, it's gonna be hard to do math problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not something that you can do. The major way to establish that with learners is we are required as educators to create a trustworthy environment that is safe and that allows for questions and exploration. Um, so I'm very explicit on rounds about, hey, I'm going to ask questions, we're going to ask, we're going to do it um, in a way. It's totally fine if you miss questions, but we're doing that because, again, active questioning is the best way to try to create those neural pathways. Going further on that, so if you ask somebody a question, and even if the answer is wrong, if they commit to it, um, and sometimes I even like having them write it down, yeah. right? Committing it on paper or committing it, um, that even if it's wrong, the likelihood that it's going to be retained in the brain is so much higher. Um, and so if anything, I would say we almost need to reclaim the question, right? Reclaim the ability to be able to ask questions, but do it in a very safe way. When I ask questions on rounds, I'm always um, in, uh, uh, looking at my learners and trying to see, okay, is this too hard of a question? Is it too easy of a question? Or are they starting to get intimidated or are they not? And you're constantly trying to make sure you're navigating that in a way that creates that environment um, that also helps them learn. So many of us, especially when we're busy, uh, default to telling. So we feel some obligation to teach on rounds. And it, 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 it ends up being, I'm gonna tell you about, in your case, brain tumors. Or I'm going to tell you about uh, the autonomic nervous system and how it shows up in this particular condition. For me, it's I'm going to tell you about Kawasaki syndrome. But from what you've described, telling alone is insufficient for teaching and may even be useless. Uh, how much of that will they remember an hour from now? And so I'm glad you raised the issue of questions because we really believe that questioning is the core for how you teach in clinical environments. It's just that everyone is so busy these days. It takes more time to have thought of good questions, questions that require some higher order thinking beyond naming structures and pointing at things on an x-ray. But boy, it's the right thing to do for them. Well, and I would take it a step further and go, uh, at the end of the day, is it actually more time? Yeah. Oh, okay. right. Because because we spend so much time with learners mm -hmm. who are learning to do this themselves. I'm a firm believer you spend a lot more time on the front end to save time on the back end. Okay. Right. And so if you um, again, not to use cliches, but to teach a man a fish versus catch a man a fish analogy, right? And so you know, I I'm on. This is July. If anybody outside of medicine knows what that means, <laughs> um, I've been on the hospital service the last two weeks, the first two weeks of July, because that's when the brand new learners come into the hospital. Um, and so I've been on that specifically because this is when you catch them, 
right? This is when you catch them. This is when you talk to them. You do it early. You spend a lot of time. You educate. You set expectations. And if you do that at the beginning, you save yourself a lot of time on the back end. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the most important. I would argue it's actually way less time. But imagine if it's not just Chris Barton doing this for who's on you know your service. Imagine if everyone in the School of Medicine was being explicit about this with their learners, and then they go to the next rotation, and then those you know attendings are explicit about it, and then they're getting that message over and over again, you can imagine it would also help, you know, with the questioning fear is we're setting this expectation, you're getting it from everyone, this is an expected part of your learning. Right, because none of them want to look bad, especially in July. Yeah, they're showing up, they're brand new, and people are going to make judgments about this person, smart, good, tall, short, whatever. As you question them, they don't want to get the wrong answers. And so in a climate, though, where it's the accepted norm that questions are part of how we teach. In fact, it might be the major part of how we teach. And it's okay to get the wrong answer. Because they don't know it yet. yet. That's the yet. And so I think it's critical that, that this is a message that you, as a very unique person, neurologist, physician, um, educator, can deliver maybe more impactfully than anyone else because if you didn't know this before HPE and started to practice these things, how little do others that came through medical school and residency and fellowship know about these things? So I'm glad that you are putting these things into practice and and doing these things because our learners will will greatly benefit. You mentioned a really important thing about building culture. Yeah. You know, and, and I think with the way you said it, it's a lot about creating that culture for our learners. But I really think it's about creating that culture among us as the educators with the last thing you said, that it is okay and acceptable to miss questions, right? right? And, and, and I think the learners, right, need to be okay with that. But us as educators have to be okay with that, right? We have to understand that people at the beginning are going to miss questions and that's how they learn it. Um, and, um, and I do feel like sometimes when you, um, you can live in a medical culture among educators where we get frustrated if a lot of questions are missed or we, if you break it down, aren't approaching our learners with a right. not yet mindset. Right. Um, and so I think, I think culturally that's so important in our life. So if you have a learner ask you a question and you're not sure, for example, this whole COVID thing for the past two and a half years, every question is new almost. And there's a lot we don't know, even though we've learned a great deal in, in this time. Um, if you demonstrate the willingness to say, okay, I don't know the answer to that, but let's go look that up. Somebody pull up the computer, let's look, we'll Google it, wherever you want to go find it. We're going to answer this together. It shows them it's okay to not know. It's okay to take time and go look it up because that's the behavior you'd like them to emulate that I don't really know, but it's okay not to know. I'm going to find out. And you ingrain that culture so that that's part of what we as faculty need to do as well. Implicit, explicit. Mm -hmm. That is a major skill as a doctor. A major thing we do is we encounter questions all the time. We have no idea what the answer is, right? right? And so, um, and um, you guys deal with that all the time on infectious disease size. We deal with that all the time on the neurology side. And so one of the things that's so essential for us to teach our learners is how to do it, right? So explicitly making that part of the norm, yes. right? And, uh, and, and, but that's not something everybody knows how to do. 
right? And so you almost have to break it down and teach. So I'll tell you, um, I run our resident clinic um, and um, we've been doing something new where at the end of clinic, um, there is a clinical question we give based off one patient each of them have saw, and their job is to go find an article and send it out to the group. Um, and then at the next visit, uh, the next clinic, one of them will spend three to five minutes quickly talking about what they learned to answer that clinical question based off the article they found. That's great. Right? And that's a, that's a thing we do every day on patients we see all the time, right? But if we're not explicitly teaching people how to do that in a super low stakes environment, right? That's, right? Yeah. Super low stakes type of environment where that just is now normal, then we've created learners who know how to do that going forward. Yeah. So Chris, you brought up low stakes. Why is that low stakes component important? Yeah, so it comes back to that fight or fight, that stress response is that you kind of need really low stakes because you want people to be high stakes, right? Uh, we deal with a lot of stuff that are high stakes and so you want to take advantage of that. Um, so that allows people to grow and learn more. Now, let's pause with that low stakes thing because that is really important. We are high stakes people who deal with a lot of high stakes situations, right? I may have people who are um, surgeons or, or people who are in the emergency room who are listening on this too. Um, so how do we use low stakes learning to also create learners who can deal with stuff at high stakes? Um, and the way that you do that is you do that through layering, yep. right? You start low stakes and you build yourself up to higher and higher stakes um, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach learners how to um, keep their brain when they are stressed out and their amygdala is firing to allow the frontal lobe and the memory uh, centers of the brain to continue to fire, right? So you kind of want a little bit of stress. Now I would say in medicine, we've probably taken that too far pushing the stress element, which is why I think starting low and working your way up, again, constantly adjusting the amount of stress that you're putting on learners. Um, I think that's very important with stages. Um, and that can be extremely helpful um, to try to accomplish what it is you want them to do at the end. So in your grand rounds, you talked about how medical education is you know, very difficult and it often results in chronic stress and sleep loss. So how does that affect healthcare learners? Yeah, so, um, so we're, you know, as doctors, we by definition have chronic stress. Um, if we did it before, we definitely <laughs> do after COVID um, and chronic sleep deprivation. And then I thought I was sleep deprived and now I have a six month old. Um, so <laughs> just wanna throw that in there. And, um, um, and so uh, these things can be really difficult because a lot of our learners have chronic stress that they're dealing with all the time. Um, a big push in medicine in the past couple of years has been wellness. And that has honestly had mixed bag results because a lot of times what we say with wellness is this is another thing that learners have to do that they are responsible for. Um, and I think a better way to think about wellness is teaching us as a culture and us taking responsibility for our learners of their wellness so that they can grow and learn better. Um, when we talk about sleep, I always laugh 
when us try to tell residents that they need to sleep better, right? I think that's the stupidest thing for us to do, right? It's just dumb. It's like, hey, here's your call schedule, and by the way, sleep better, right? Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. It comes off disingenuous. You'll make people angry and mad that way. Um, What a better way of saying that is, hey, we know sleep is hard. We know this is difficult. It's also a part of life. How are ways that we can still maximize sleep even in very sleepless environments. Um, That way we can still learn and grow. So Chris, early on in our conversation, you were talking about making your thinking explicit to the learner. And so my question to you is, do you know why? Why should we do that? Especially with a lot of the diagnosis and procedure stuff that we do, it's very helpful to learn why we do things because what that does is that creates extra pathways right around that to help you remember it better or remember it uh, more efficiently. Um, So for uh, example, I'm also trying to do a lot of teaching my residents how to teach. So like on rounds today, one of my residents was teaching a little bit and kind of did a more telling but not a full understanding of like, a little bit more why um, and so I got paused and I was like that's good but we've got some mixed learners here what are you trying to say you know like what what is that conclusion that you are jumping to you've jumped to something but they haven't made that connection yet where is that because you're trying to then get them to do that um, you know same same thing with uh, uh, you get a lot of learners and, and residents who like to jump the plants right you, you and I plans right and not necessarily knowing okay how did we get there why did we get there Um, we'll do that a lot on rounds for efficiency sake and medical students will see that and they haven't learned like okay how did we build a differential how did we narrow it down how did we decide this this is and this is why we made this plan you know and so like breaking that down even quickly in that time that procedure is just very important yeah. They don't see the it. shortcuts, Stacey. No, because they miss it. And so, because that's the whole thing between the novice versus the expert. Because as you as expert, if you don't make your thinking explicit, you jump to that endpoint. And so the novice learner thinks they too should just jump to the endpoint and don't see those middle steps. So by making your thinking explicit, you are showing them how critical thinking works, how clinical reasoning actually works, and providing those examples is exactly what our learners need to see in order to help them learn there are these in-between steps that you don't always see when working with an attending. And that's where another key part of um, this that we haven't talked about that can also help with um, trying to create those neural pathways is reflection. Uh, that's That's a major, major part, reflection and metacognition. So thinking about what we did and why we did it. Um... Uh, and that that's a major part and so sometimes um, you know if we've gone into a room and we've seen a patient and something's difficult and we walk out you know I like to stop rounds and go okay pause like let's take time out let's break down what did we see what happened what went well what didn't like why did we do what we did you know like let's say that let's talk about how that worked and how that went well so, Chris, in, in the medical education environment, it's not uncommon that we have learners at different levels. Um, and so tell us something about how you might approach that as you make rounds. 
you get a lot of learners that come in with varying degrees of experience. Mm -hmm. um, it is July, and so it's it's very difficult. I've been on rounds where I have a about to graduate child neurology resident, got two nurse practitioners, I've got an upper level pediatric resident, I've got a brand new pediatric intern who just started, I've got two third year medical students in their first time, and I've got a first year medical student who's learning things as well as a college student. You get um, a 10 years gap there between oh the lowest and the yeah, highest trained yeah. person. And, and so, so this becomes extremely difficult for us as educators. Well, how do you engage and how do you grow people at different skill levels and learning levels? Um, and that's where you, know, you really have to kind of know what your learners know. Now, I have a blessing and a curse of having trained here at this medical school. A blessing and curse meaning like I sometimes now jump into, well, back in my day uh, type of stuff <laughs> um, that can sometimes be helpful and sometimes not. Um, but, but a blessing because I have at least a decent idea of the type of stuff that they've been learning and at different levels. And so that's a really important thing because if you're trying to tell your third year medical student the same type of stuff you're telling your fourth year resident, like they're gonna miss all of it it's going to go over their head. They're going to get very stressed out. They're going to stop learning and they're going to stop teaching. The same vein, though, if I start trying to talk to my fourth year resident about stuff that I'm going to tell a medical student, like they don't want to be there. They're not going to listen. They're going to get bored. Um, and so, so having a basic knowledge of your different learners. Um, so sometimes I'll give like a quick bedside lecture with people at different levels. And so I will fire, okay, at the now resident level question medical student question okay a couple of things going back and forth um you know it's very very hard um but it's a very important thing to do chris each week we try to ask our guests to uh make a recommendation for listeners to do something with what they've learned in the podcast what's the one thing you would recommend that our listeners put into practice after hearing this yeah so i i think the most important thing here is going to be practicing that non, not yet mindset. So I would challenge every um, learner to think about one topic that you just don't think you're ever going to learn. Just think about it, approach it, and then think about what it would look like if you had not yet. Um, and as educators, um, or if you're doing both, um, if you're educators, though, think about are there specific things that you just given up teaching? You just think, hey, it's never going to happen. It's never going to improve. Um, I've tried too hard, um, I've given up, you know, what's something that you've um, done that, or maybe a group of learners you've given up on that, and think about w how would things look different, or how would life look different for you if you approach that as a possibility. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on Faculty Feed. We really enjoyed listening to you. You've reinforced some of the themes that we have hammered on uh, <laughs> over this past, past several months that we've had Faculty Feed in place. Uh, it's always great to hear, hear from you and to hear that HPE is having an impact with faculty as it helps to bring them some awareness about these uh, issues related to learning science. So thanks again for coming. Next Friday on Faculty Feed, Carrie Bonnert is going to be with us talking about how patient simulation complements medical education at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed 
at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.